Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Today, we are continuing with our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. Our guest today is Christina Cameron. But before we get to her, I would like to thank today's sponsor, uh, Molina Law Group, who is sponsoring all of these podcasts for this month. Did you know that the crisis at the border with unaccompanied children or unaccompanied minors is within the scope of the immigration policies of the U.S. If you know anyone on the border or anyone who needs uh, legal support, legal information, as they begin to receive some of these uh, unaccompanied minors here in the U.S. In the, or any place in the United States, Molina Law Group is able to help. Immigration law is governed by the federal government. It's not mandated by the states. So an immigration attorney can uh, serve any need in any state with any client. You can get a hold of Molina Law Group, 541-653-8899. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. And they will be opening their offices in Beaverton, Oregon, this July 2021. Again, thank you, Molina Law Group, for your sponsorship of today's program. I'm really excited uh, for today's guest. I've known Christina for quite some time. We met years ago, probably 15 years ago at the Springfield Greeters. A very dynamic young lady who is obviously above and beyond someone who does marketing. She's a leader. She's a great communicator. She's an activist. And I say activist because she does a lot of good, honest, hard work in the community in serving others. And today we're going to be interviewing her as she has been leading many of our endeavors here locally with our nonprofits and most importantly in the uh, in the work that's being done I'm starting to have a little technical problems I'm sorry Christina that's that hasn't happened before uh, with love first and the recovery of the holiday farm fires Christina Cameron wasted no time getting to work the 20 under 40 honoree says she was still attending Elmira High School when she began working at First Interstate Bank in Eugene. Wells Fargo acquired First Interstate Bank, so Cameron became a Wells Fargo employee. At the age of 21, she moved to Los Angeles where she worked as a vice president or branch at a vice president local branch. Vice president branch manager, excuse me. Her words are, I started working at a young age, have always been a driven and hard worker, and was fortunate to have my hard work recognized and rewarded, she says. Cameron took another banking job at other banking jobs at Washington Mutual and Umqua Bank before moving to marketing at a print company and at Fifth Street Public Market. In 2009, at the age of 32, she formed her own firm, Cameron and Company, where she works with about a dozen contracted employees. She said she started her own firm because she wanted the flexibility to work through creative and strategic planning without limitations. Cameron was nominated for 20 under 40 by her friend Randall Rogers, who, is, who in his nomination letter said she operates her marketing business while supporting local businesses, nonprofits, and the community. Her infectious optimism, community spirit, and strong leadership have led me to participate, donate, and supports several events and organizations she represents, he said. Cameron managed uh, marketing and fundraising events for Beyond Toxic and Environmental Group. Her community involvement includes being a member of the marketing, uh, the marketing committee for the Court 
appointed special advocates or CASA, team captain for March of Babies, affiliated with the March of Dimes, and is, and is chairwoman of the Red Cross Heroes. Cameron supports the growth and advancement for others through her business and volunteer efforts, Rogers wrote. She has worked with dozens of students, helping them position themselves for their career path. Cameron said she has learned some tough lessons through these growing years, and I feel blessed to share the importance of them when working with students starting their career and, and or associates that came up as their paths cross. Excuse me, I'm struggling a little bit today. I don't know what that's all about. Anyway, Christina Cameron, welcome to Molina Leadership Solutions Women in Leadership Series. We started this in December. Many people recommended you, if I hadn't told you this yet, in the community for this program. And so I'm delighted that the time and the opportunity have presented themselves that we can begin this work together today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for having me. Now, you are the CEO of Cameron and Company, but you are also co-founder and CEO of Love First. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Uh, president uh, and co-founder of Love First. Uh, we are a recent formed nonprofit in response to the Oregon wildfires that started uh, blazing across our state on September 5th. Let's go back in time before we come back to Love First. Working in high school, while at Elmira, uh, Elmira, who were some of the examples for you as a young lady in your life that made such an impact on you that immediately you went to work and your ambition and your desire to do well, your desire to progress became so evident? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I know it sounds generic to talk about uh, your parents, um, but of course my mom played a vital role. My mom uh, really was truly an activist um, and she has always had uh, a heart for community and philanthropy, uh, leaving our world better than, uh, you know, well, not just our world, but uh, relationships or our lives that we are to respect what we come in contact with and to leave things better. Um, and so she was a great role model. And, you know, my life was constantly surrounded by other strong women uh, through her. My mom loves Jackie O, um, as do I, and um, RGB. And I mean, there's just a long list of incredible leaders. I know we're talking about women in specific today, so uh, that's why I'm highlighting them. Um, and I want to also include my aunt, uh, who um, is terminally ill right now, um, but she uh, has been like a second mom, and she is a very strong woman. Um, her and her husband owned a trucking company, and um, she's been a very hard worker and uh, a huge influence in my life. Now, when you began your job at the bank, you were still in high school. What was that like for you coming from the family that you did, seeing the activism that you saw, the philanthropy that you experienced? What was it like for you coming into this world of banking with those really encouraging roots? You know, they were two very different worlds. Banking is uh, very corporate. Um, and so I often say I was raised by the bank professionally because uh, 
activism um, is really not in alignment with a more conservative uh, political landscape. Um, and so, it, you know, it's uh, very difficult to find a way to intertwine the two effectively. And I feel fortunate that I had enough exposure uh, at such a level that I did at such a young age that I was able to really understand both and appreciate the value that both bring and, and try to merge um, those values efficiently together. So it's been a, a dance, if you will, but it's one that I've really been grateful to get be exposed to. Now you you have a lot of, you've had a lot of success, amazing, incredible success. And has that been outside of any advanced education, so to speak? You know, when I was, I, I feel like I'm definitely in the aging realm because I definitely use the when I was young uh, terminology. And so it's funny whenever I start to a sentence with that, but when I was, uh, at the age to go to college, there was no online school. Uh, there were, there was not night classes. There wasn't, um, I mean, vocational studies were very traditional at that time. You went to a college classroom and you went during business hours. And by the time I was 18, I was launching in-store banks for Wells Fargo. That's when in-store banking had just become a thing. This was in the mid nineties. Um, so I had a choice to pick my career or pick my education and I picked my career. I have uh, gone to community colleges, both in Oregon and in Santa Monica and taken some um, certifications and done some specialized studies um, and accreditations. But in terms of a traditional um, collegiate degree, I chose a professional path. I think that's very unique, and I wanted to stress that because somewhere along the line, I, I think I knew this already in the back of my mind. And it's really, it's possible for an up-and-coming workforce to understand that they don't have to go to traditional college. Uh, there are many ways to get an education. There are many ways to increase in skill and knowledge. You went to local community colleges for certifications for specialized studies within the realm of what you were doing professionally. And what was that last thing you said? I don't recall. I think it just was that um, I had to make a choice essentially between at, at that time in the 90s of going to a college or continuing with my profession and that I chose my career path. Well, your your life is an example uh, for any young adult coming into the professional realm or the business world or any profession. If they're willing to work hard to pay the price, there are many ways of education that are outside of the college classroom and being able to pick up these certifications and specialty trainings, things of that nature are absolutely open doors for advancement. Now you said at 18 you were launching, did you say instra banking? In store. In store. Uh yeah, so just like it's very common today that you could go into a grocery store and see a bank. In the 90s, Wells Fargo uh, in Oregon, at least especially in Lane County, had just introduced that concept of banking. And so I was uh, launching it. Uh, here, it started at 40th and Donald's in Eugene for people that are watching locally. 
uh, and our next branch was in Cottage Grove. Um, you know, this was a time of banking that the movies are made about. So this was a very, a very unique time to be in banking. And it was very, very rare for, for somebody young to be in banking. And it was very, very rare for a female to be in banking. Um, and so this was a very uh, different time. Now, when you, what kind of things did Wells Fargo do for you at that season of your time as they were helping develop you? They obviously saw something very dynamic in you and very unique. What were some of the things that you, that you can remember that they did not only to encourage you, but set into motion the skill sets that you needed to launch these in-store banks? Yeah, that's another great question. Wells Fargo was really uh, great at doing uh, leadership training. And so, you know, I haven't been in banking for, uh, gosh, well, almost two decades. So I, I'm sure banking has changed a lot, but they were very, very good at um, doing personality assessments, uh, helping you identify what your personality traits were, how that folds into management and leadership, uh, identifying where your strengths and weaknesses are, um, they taught me, I mean, they really taught me everything I knew professionally. They taught me about demographics and target marketing. They taught me uh, how to identify um, and assess uh, needs, um, how to uh, match products. I was very successful in banking because at that time, in large part, uh, your performance was measured in sales. And it was a time where uh, selling was uh, not something that was being welcomed by traditional banking practices. And being so young and being outgoing and feeling that um, if you're offering somebody a service that I don't see that as a sell necessarily. To me, it's about helping somebody better uh, themselves, their lives, their finances, their options, a lot of that has to do with exposure and knowledge, um, empowering people to be exposed to the knowledge that they need to help them make the best choices for their life uh, is something that really has just been at the forefront with all of my communication and business. But that's really kind of the model that banking had in identifying um, potential products and services that would be a good match for a client. Um, so, I mean, they, they taught me all my, my core uh, career values and, and foundation in, in many regards. Well, this is very fluid for you to give this detailed explanation. So you can tell that it had a tremendous impact on who you are as a person. Can you remember at that age as you were beginning this new process within the banking system to the community because you come from Elmira it's kind of small town a little bit well I actually moved from LA to Elmira when I was 12. okay all right so then I was going to ask you the question was at what point were you realizing that your horizons were about were really beginning to expand now there was some real capacity here to do something special you know, I think that uh, we are born with certain um, personality types. And then I think that our um, upbringing and our external environment has an influence. And 
a lot of that, I was born that way. I just, um, you know, had a belief system that was uh, very much not in alignment with reality. And I have an amazing mom who raised me to truly believe anything is possible. Um, you know, it, it could be uh, an incurable terminal illness and my mom uh, has the mindset that there is a cure. Um, it just hasn't been found yet and we're gonna find it. Um, and so between being born uh, with that personality type and then being raised in, in an environment where I was heavily influenced to really follow the Disney belief system that everything is possible, it um, has coupled well. It's definitely taught me a lot of difficult lessons um, of where reality and the rubber meets the road, um, but it just helps you navigate um, forging those paths. Do you remember at that time in your development, those first few years of your development, especially as you began the in-store banking and they're laying, Wells Fargo's laying this foundation in you, do you remember some of the observations by some of your leaders at that time within the organization that were communicating to you their awareness of this this gift within you that was setting you apart? I do. Uh, I'd love to uh, focus on that and I will. I just also want to incorporate, as I mentioned, it was uh, beyond abnormal for there to be a youth and or a female, let alone a young female. Um, I mean, I was in upper level management before I could legally buy alcohol. Um, that was at least in uh, Wells Fargo at that time in the history of Wells Fargo that had never happened. Um, and so as much as there were people in my path that um, believed in me and hired me or promoted me or trained me, um, there was a significantly larger percentage of people who pointed out that I didn't belong. Um, and I just think it's important to touch on that because um, I've heard you say a few times now that I've had some great successes and it's true. I've also had a lot of hardships and failures. And I think it's important for people to understand that, um, you know, we just have to keep putting our best foot forward. We have to get back up and we have to not lose hope and not lose faith. Um, and if we press forward with that, um, understanding, you know, that's where the all things are possible. There's tons of studies out there about how many times you fail before you succeed. Um, and there's truth in that. And so I had my fair share of um, uh, objective thinking about what my capacities were being uh, a woman and being young in that era. We, we still have quite a bit of that, but it was much more prevalent uh, you know, this is, again, 25 years ago. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I know that that's, that's true. And so thank you for bringing that up. You know, that's a conversation you and I have never had before. And I know no one ever just gets to the top or get becomes successful without a lot of, you know, human nature is not always a pleasant thing. And uh, jealousy can show its head in many, many ways. And people begin to trip people up or attempt to sabotage or ruin or do things that will bring another person down. 
when you encounter those really challenging moments, Christina, you were a young woman, but it sounds like your mother really gave you that great example of you can do it, you can overcome, stay the course. Do you remember some of how did you navigate? There's going to be some a lot of people who watch this. This is titled Women in Leadership. What would you say to other women, especially young women who are beginning their professional careers and they do begin to encounter that kind of resistance? How did you handle it? And what would you say to them to get through it? Uh, the first thing that I think is so important is I didn't uh, really plug into self-care or self-work or boundaries in on really any level until a few years ago. Uh, there is, uh, it's worth its weight in gold. I think um, there's a lot of shame associated with counseling uh, or any type of self-work that, you know, you're not strong enough, you couldn't figure it out by yourself, that you, something's wrong with you. Um, that, that is static to not listen to. So I think the most important thing is um, really investing in yourself. This is a lesson that came much later in life. I wish that I was able to embrace that earlier. Uh, it would have helped me navigate quite a few of the learning lessons that I had to forge the hard way. Um, so that's one thing, you know, just learning uh, that you can use your voice, you can say no, you can set boundaries, you can stand up for yourself, you can uh, ask for your worth, you can um, not feel that you have to uh, be subjected to something in order to have something, to have a, to have a career, to have, um, you know, whatever it is that you're wanting to attain that you equate to happiness or success, that that has to come at a cost, that you have to be subjected to something um, is a belief system that doesn't serve us and isn't true. And so that is really one of the things that I wanna lead with um, is just empowering, um, anybody, but especially this is about women. So empowering women um, to feel the confidence to navigate being able to speak their truth, stand up for themselves um, and believe in themselves. The second thing, um, and they really go hand in hand um, is having, I always talk about having a great village. Um, so a really good support system, uh, I think faith can play a huge role in that. Everybody has their own walk and in individuality in this life that we journey through, but having something that um, you can uh, look to, to refill your hope and your faith and restore you, having um, people that will be there for you and give you words of wisdom and help build you up, uh, having people that are, you know, better than you. If there's something that you're wanting to learn, if you're wanting to get into a degree in journalism, surround yourself with expert journalists. Uh, whatever it is that you're looking to do in life, surround yourself with people that are doing it better and learn from them. Be open, be willing to listen and be willing to work. Uh, even if you go and volunteer at a nonprofit that specializes in something you're interested in, you will get uh, what you're looking for if you put the energy into it. United History uh, interviewed Holly Mar Conte from the United Way, and she talked a lot about that mentors, mentorship, 
and how that had a massive impact on her here as she came here to this community from California. Uh, how do you use your platform? There's so much I want to talk about with you, but we're going to stay on this topic for a moment. Okay. How do you use your platform, your leadership experiences, your pain, as well as your failures and your successes within the realm of trying to be either a mentor or develop uh, those that are people that are around you? Honesty is really, really important. Uh, you know, that's another thing we are taught as a society to hide uh, all our flaws, uh, our shame. You have done a tremendous job in transparency and leadership yourself, and you set a great role model in doing that. It's so vital for us to all be a light in community. Um, and if we're able to share um, our skeletons instead of trying to stuff them in the closet and walk out the front door with a perfect Sunday dress, but if we're able to appropriately share what um, our experiences are in life, I do believe things happen for a reason. And I do believe that we get an opportunity in that to um, help others to learn, to grow. Um, and so if we're, if we're able to um, find that place of peace uh, in accepting what we have experienced, that we can be communicative and transparent with people that it doesn't even have to be somebody we're close to. It could be a stranger in line at a grocery store. You just never know uh, the impact you can have on somebody. And so when we get those opportunities, I think it's really important um, to be able to open up and share. Very good. Let's uh, go back in time to a 21-year-old young lady heading down to Los Angeles, California to become a branch manager at a bank. What was that like? What did your family think? What did you think? How did that ha happen? Tell us a little bit about that journey. Uh, it's really quite a story that uh, could could be in a book or a movie. I was in branch management before that. This was to get into a, a vice president role. Um, I have friends and family in LA. I went to LA for my 21st birthday and a lot of uh, friends and family are um, in Hollywood and in the music industry. And so I literally hung out with celebrities on my 21st birthday. I danced to Zoot Suit Riot with Cherry Pop and Daddies while they performed at the House of Blues um, at a private function for Warner Brothers. Dan Aykroyd bought me my first legal drink. And I thought, wow, could you imagine this being your entire life? And even though I'm originally from LA, I saw myself as this kid from Elmira, Oregon, this tiny rural town. Um, and here I am having this surreal birthday experience and so I thought, well, I'm just going to go apply. I mean, I think that's part of our biggest thing is we always tell ourselves the list of reasons why something can't happen or why it can't happen now instead of just action. Over 90%, uh, and Tony Robbins is somebody who talks a lot about this, but over 90% of our failure is just a lack of action. Um, and so I just decided I was going to go apply for a job. And I knew there was no way I would get this job because I'm just this kid from Elmira, Oregon, and everybody wants to move to LA and everybody wants the big paying job in LA and they're gonna have far more qualifications and they're gonna be 
uh, older men. <laughs> so they're going to get the job. And uh, I came back home and I didn't even tell my friends or family or employers or anything that I applied. I really didn't think I was going to get it. It just kind of happened. And I get this call about two weeks later and they said, we want you here and we want you here tomorrow. And so uh, my friends and family and employer were actually not supportive or happy uh, for me. And, um, you know, <laughs> next thing you know, I was packing up and moving to L.A. with stars in my eyes. Did you fly down or you did you drive down? I drove a U-Haul. I drove a huge U-Haul and pulled my car. Well, how could you not go and do that after dancing to Zoot Suit Riot as a Cherry Pop and Daddies performed it live, after Dan Aykroyd bought you your first legal drink? How could you say no to that kind of opportunity? That's how I felt. <laughs> so you get to LA, you're an executive branch manager. If I said that right, I apologize if I didn't. What? How did that that new opportunity began to change you from the inside out. How did your perspective begin to expand? I mean, I moved to a whole different world, even though, again, I was originally from LA. I was there as a child. I was very, very sheltered. I wasn't exposed uh, to really anything outside of um, hyper vigilantly protected environments. And so I I, uh, I didn't really have exposure to the real world per se. Uh, I definitely didn't have exposure to street smarts. And then I moved to this very tiny rural town in the middle of nowhere and so continued to not have uh, either of those. And then I'm in one of the biggest uh, cities in the country um, that is no notorious for, you know, sharks in the waters and literally and metaphorically. Um, and so, yeah, it was, a it was very interesting. I mean, for the longest time, it, it's your typical Hollywood movie of small town girl moves to big city. Uh, and it was, uh, a lot of learning experiences. There was just, it was, Literally, there was nothing that I had ever been exposed to that I experienced there. You know, I, you know, I'm a small town Texas boy originally. When I joined the army, I was like you. I didn't have the wits to understand what was happening with all these people from all these big cities around me that were that had a lot of street smarts and were good at hustling and all of that. I, everybody, <laughs> embarrassingly, Christina. I think just about everybody I knew took advantage of me the first year and a half I was in. And after not getting paid back borrowed money and people stealing my clothes at the laundry room and all that stuff, I got smart quick. So uh, I, I understand that sense of being lost in a big world in a big sea. Now, tell us a little bit about your development there at a, such a young age at the bank. How was that professional progression taking place? What do you mean specifically? Well, you went to be, to get into, uh, did you say executive branch management? Vice president. Vice president. So what was that like for you developmentally in this new, new city in a new position? So uh, my career was relatively fast tracked. I started, of course, as a teller at 16 and every about six to nine months I got promoted. Um, I worked at 500% to goal. 
Uh, I was a top performing executive uh, the every quarter the entire time. Um, and so with each promotion came a new branch and sometimes a new city. Uh, it was just kind of part of that lateral career momentum. Um, you know, LA was definitely the biggest uh, impact in that. LA has uh, a reputation, a well-earned reputation that they continue to uphold to be a very competitive marketplace um, and to be very uh, business aggressive. Um, again, this was a time that was uh, historic for um, banking having uh, lofty goals that were not in alignment with maybe necessarily uh, lenders' ability or best interest. Um, it was very goal-driven. Um, and so uh, being a performer, it, it just was really about quotas at that time. Um, and in the onset of it, uh, it was very flattering and rewarding and enriching to be a star performer. Uh, eventually, just like anybody who feels like they work hard, uh, you want to feel um, like you have more value in input and worth than being a cog in a machine. Uh, and so it, it just was a matter of time before I realized um, that, you know, community is so important. Um, the lives that are uh, in our immediate circle that enrich us and nourish us, hopefully, um, are something that have to play a significant factor aside from just work. Um, and trying to find that balance uh, is what brought me back to Eugene. That's the last thing I expected to hear you say. <laughs> that, that deep emotional connection to small town values, uh, small community values, wanting to have that sense of root and having that sense of connection. Cause I could imagine how, I can imagine you having a lot of success in LA, but also in this big wide sea of a lot of people having success in a way where you can, you kind of just get lost in that stream and it's hard to stop and say, you know, this is also who I am. So for observation, I can hear in what you're saying, going back to a place where this is also who I am. Right. Coming the, back. Oh, I was just gonna say, uh, there's so much pressure in Los Angeles about superficiality. Um, and there is really not a lot of uh, energy or focus or intention around deeper roots and connection and community, at least in the areas that I was in. I lived in Santa Monica and I worked in Beverly Hills. So two very superficial areas. Um, and I had literal movie star clients. So not just in those areas, but um, I worked in a demographic that was um, about superficiality. I lived in a demographic that was about it and I associated in a demographic that it was about it. So I had no where to really connect deeper roots on a personal level or professional. And so was there a particular trigger moment or was this just over time you, you began to realize uh, this is not who I am and I need to go back to where I'm from? 
there was kind of the signs we get. Uh, we all get our signs, our um, gut feelings or red lights. And I really encourage people all of the time to listen to those immediately, to take heed immediately that those things are not gonna go away. They're gonna get stronger and the consequence is gonna get more significant. Um, we, by human nature, tend to justify those things as it will be fine, it will go away, I will figure it out, I will work it out. Um, it's just rarely how it aligns in reality. Um, and so I did have some of those kind of precursor moments that I dismissed and justified. But the one, uh, it's funny that you asked that question because the main significant thing that happened was 9-11. Mm -hmm. How did that impact you, 9-11? What was the, what happened in that revelationary moment that said, okay, it's time for me to, to go home? So uh, most people who lived through 9-11 at an age that we can remember could tell you exactly where they were. Um, they could tell you exactly how they found out. Um, they could give you a lot of information about it. I definitely am not. Um, I have that uh, very vivid memory as well. I was dating and very much in love with a um very suave young man from um he was persian and he called me first thing in the morning and i was panicked they were they his family owned a diamond importing and exporting company they had offices and and uh employees and family in new york um and so the second that he called i went to concern about his um, family and employees and friends and associates. And he was so cavalier. And I thought, oh, he has no idea what's going on. He hasn't watched the news yet. And I told him and he said, yeah, this stuff happens all over the world all the time. It's just that it's never happened here. So, you know, you guys are making a big deal of it. And I thought, Oh, no, you did not just say that to me. We are not going to work out. <laughs> and uh, as the day went on, everybody that I interacted with, you know, there was a lot of shock, but there was a huge disconnect emotionally in the fact that there was a mother who just jumped out of a building to her death. And there was a fireman who just ran into a building to his death. And that there was um, people running down the street in terror that got buried in rubble. I mean, there was such a vivid portrayal to me, uh, emotionally, empathetically, uh, and with compassion to those lives. I don't know these people. Uh, and yet I grieve for their families, um, for the trauma of those last moments of their life. Um, for just this horrible tragedy that our country went through. Um, and to have uh, my uh, social professional environment have this disconnected, unempathetic, unemotional response of uh, how it didn't really affect their life. Um, I, I just couldn't fathom 
having that type of response. It, it's uh, irrelevant if something impacts your life personally. We are all united. Um, we all comprise this world. Um, we all affect all of our actions affect the people in our lives, which affect the people in their lives, we have a responsibility as a society uh, to be held to a higher standard and to care about people we don't know, uh, in my opinion. And so that was a real uh, line in the sand of this is not home for me. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective, Christina. I Until you shared that, until you mentioned that, I guess uh, naiveness in me would have expected that anywhere in America at that time, as that was happening, I was watching it happen on the news. So I remember specifically what I was doing and where I was watching the planes. Well, I watched the second plane fly into the second tower, but that would have sent me into a personal tailspin as well, realizing that where I'm at, the people that I'm with, the people that I know aren't in the least bit interested or affected uh, by this tragedy. And it, I would have to probably have left the area as well. You packed up, you came home. Just to defend the people that did care, it wasn't every single person, so. Um, I do want to say that, but the high majority uh, were not as emotionally impacted as I was. As you said that, as you were mentioning your experience, your observations of that day, my, I was in Germany in, in the 80s in the army when everything was taking place from P President Reagan. I don't know your age exactly, maybe before you were born, but uh, when Reagan was president. We had all the issues going on with Libya and and we were on high security for much of the time and people were coming on onto the bases and blowing buildings up and and killing Americans and killing Americans uh, at the restaurants and discotheques and kidnapping them and taking their IDs and stuff to come on the installation uh, and all the multiple installations to, to blow buildings up and to kill people and there was a lot of that going on. So I remember how that impacted all of us where we were all had this sense of community as soldiers, you know, that we were all responsible one for another. So I can imagine how that would have had a deep impact on you. So you packed up and you came home. What was that like for you coming home from this LA experience, tremendous success, as well as I'm sure you had to navigate a lot of uh, landmines as well or mine feels, what was it like when you came home? How were you different? And was your family ready for you? Well, uh, so my family, I'm an only child and my dad died when I was a baby. My mom uh, married him for life, she says. So even though she was only uh, 27, I believe when my dad passed, she never remarried. And so my mom has followed me. When I move out of state, she ends up uh, being in tote right behind me in a matter of time. So, um, you know, honestly, I was depressed to move back to Eugene. I didn't want to come back to Eugene. I had 
uh, big aspirations that I wanted. I, I'm a fair weather girl. I love the sunshine and I love the sand in my toes. Um, I loved that I hung out with movie stars. I loved that I had this huge career and uh, made great money and lived, uh, you know, right by the beach. I mean, I, I loved, again, from a superficial standpoint, I loved my life and I didn't want to leave it. Um, and so it was very bittersweet coming back to Eugene. It almost kind of felt like a failure, like moving back into your parents' house uh, when you go for your first job and it doesn't work out and you can't afford your, your rent anymore and you have to move back in with mom and dad, that's kind of how it felt. Um, it's taken me some time to have a deeper um, perspective. How old were you when you came back? I was about 24, I think. And so you started Cameron and Company about eight years later? I started Cameron and Company. So I was in uh, born in 77. You asked about my age and if I was alive in the 80s. Um, so I was, let's see, it's 12 years. So 32, I was 32, I believe, when I started Cameron and Company. So from what did you do from 24 to 32? So I started in banking, uh, stayed in banking, came back here, stayed in banking. I got to go through lots and lots, and lots of mergers and acquisitions, which anybody in banking will be lamenting right now in understanding what that means. Um, I went through almost all of them, first interstate in Wells Fargo, Centennial in Umpqua, Washington, and uh, home savings. So I went, I got to go through all the mergers. Um, and I uh, met my um, ex whose family owned a printing company in town. And I ended up leaving banking and going and working uh, with his family in a family owned local print company. And I did that for a long time. And I loved it. Uh, that's when I really got involved with the community, uh, with, got involved with the Chamber of Commerce, um, was on the board of, I was on the board or uh, in a leadership position with over 20 organizations at one point. Um, I, uh, I loved my clients. I, I loved what I did. Um, and so I had a really nice kind of work-life balance. Um, and community involvement and roots and we separated and uh, it was not going to work out for me to stay there. I was hoping that it would, you know, I thought I'm already losing um, my partner and my best friend and having to move. I don't want to lose my job at the same time. And his family and I were very close and they wanted me to stay and I wanted to stay It just uh, did not work out. And so I was actually in the middle of a very large job for um, Golden Tea, uh, Yogi, Golden Temple Yogi Tea at the time. Um, and we were having a lot of problems with, um, with things at work. And the 
person who was the project manager and ran the marketing department was also a friend. And she said, Christina, I love you. And I'm sorry that you're going through some personal stuff right now. With that being said, I'm not going to lose my job or have our deadline not met. Um, and so I said, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. And I found another um, business to take care of it and outsource it. Uh, which, you know, I really did not want to do. It's just, I had to get the client taken care of. Um, and so that's, you know, the actual true story of how it happened at the end of the project. She said, who do I make the checkout to? And without thinking, I just said, Cameron and company. And it's kind of ironic because I have a background in banking. So I know you can't make a checkout to a business that doesn't exist. For some reason, I thought, well, this will be different. It's kind of that thinking that we talked about earlier that anything is possible. Uh, and so I had a, you know, a large check to go down to the bank for a business that didn't exist. And the bank let me know I needed to create a business that day. And I did. Uh, so that's really how it started. Wow. <laughs> what? What that must have felt like for you to realize going to the bank with a really large check and think something just happened. I'm not sure what it is, but it's going to be good. It's, uh, it's going to be big. Uh, what did your mom think when you explained to her the situation? Uh, you know, my mom was honestly sad about uh, the relationship not working out. We were together for a very long time and um, being as close as we are, uh, anybody that I'm close to, she tends to become close to. And, and so uh, it was just a, a difficult transition time for both of us, but she was definitely proud that I was persevering and I think a little shocked I think I shock her a lot with these uh, almost rabbit in the hat solutions. Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? I can now. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I don't know where I left off, but essentially I was just saying that I believe no is the beginning for not right now or not this way or not with that person. Um, and so uh, it just... Uh, was time to start something new and different. And that was the timing that it had to happen. I appreciate what, it, what you said earlier about felt depressed to come back to Eugene, felt a little bit like failure. It took some time to have a deeper understanding of everything that has happened and the experience of leaving LA post 9-11. And I see your this expression of your life and that difficult experience as part of that ongoing development, that ongoing deeper understanding that took you to this next place where you could function freely and and uh, that who you are naturally was able to begin to resurface once again. What would you say, Christina, to women in leadership, young women entering leadership, that are going through a hard time right now, not feeling like they can navigate it or get through it? Gosh, um, I want them to know that they're not alone. 
Um, and I just want to encourage them to plug into anything that's going to feed them. I mean, there's so much available even through YouTube. Um, there's so much great uh, podcasts or songs. Music is really great therapy, just going for a walk. Um, but doing something to switch yourself up out of, uh, we get stuck in these kind of routines of messaging that things that have been spoken into our life uh, that are other people's fears or limitations uh, that we allow ourselves to receive. Um, and then we associate that as a true message to our identity. Um, and we don't realize how much of our power we allow it to rob from us. Um, and so, um, you know, I think just that's like the most important place that we can start is what's in between our own ears. Um, that's going to direct our steps. That's going to, um, soften our hearts. That's going to, um, give us the boldness we need to take a step forward, uh, when we need to. Um, I mean, that's really where our most important place to start. That's kind of where to circle back to what I said in the beginning about uh, self-work and boundaries um, and self-growth. It's so important if people can plug into, again, mentorship, um, if they can go to um, something, not just a workshop where you're sitting in a room in a seminar and it's Arctic refrigerator air blowing in, recycled everything and you're in a hard plastic chair and you can't wait to get up and leave the room something that moves you something that moves you to a point that you don't even realize two hours just went by um you know that's where we need to plug into and it can be hard to find and that's again why having somebody who is more of an expert um be able to give you advice and tips and guidance is so you can plug into there's so much to plug into um I would also even just like to say that I am happy for anybody to contact me. Um, I, I'm, I'm very easy to talk to. So um, I just wanna welcome and encourage anybody that might hear this. Um, if they don't know where to reach out, um, I would be honored uh, for them to consider me as one of those options. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about love first let's talk about how that came to fruition you're one of the co-founders who's the other co-founder and what's the current state of love first and what are your uh some of your closer objectives i really have to attribute a lot of that to you um again talking about your leadership and your light in this community and your amazing hard work uh i woke up september 5th and i am an empath my entire newsfeed was um, pictures or posts or videos of people running for their lives all over the state of Oregon. Um, I heard some of the most traumatic audio clips I've ever heard in my life. I still can't hardly talk about it without crying. Um, it was probably one of the most vivid moments of my entire life. And I sobbed from my soul and I put a post on Facebook and I said, anybody who needs anything, uh, please contact me. And, you know, that turned into just a bunch of uh, complimenting accolades, which is not what I was looking for. 
uh, I didn't have one person reach out to me. In the meantime, you were uh, on Facebook Live. I became obsessed uh, with the fire. I was on Google constantly. I was calling city commissioners and friends and community leaders and uh, nonprofit executive directors. I am pretty well networked in the community. And so I was calling all the people that I thought might be the people. Uh, and I was expecting them to say, oh, this is this is what's being handled or who handles it or how these things are handled. Uh, that is not what my experience was. Um, I was very confused and um, panicked for these people. Um, and I saw you on Facebook Live. And so I globbed onto you and I was constantly going to your Facebook page. It was one of the only sources of information that, I mean, it really wasn't even in the news. Um, and uh, there's a couple other people in the community that were doing that as well across the state in other locations. And within 24 hours, as you remember, Thurston was evacuated and um, because of the fires, the evacuation site got evacuated and you put a call out for help. Uh, and I don't know if you even know this story, but I rounded up quite a posse of uh, muscles and uh, vehicles, trucks, vans, etc. And I had the cavalry pulling up within under two hours and I was really proud. Uh, everybody was already packed up and gone. I thought, wow, this is quite an amazing group that from your SOS call to me procuring this in, in I thought a good timeline, uh, it's already done. And while we were all kind of commencing about what do we do, do we stay or do we go? Uh, this tall guy ran up to me and said, are you a volunteer? And so I just said, yes. And he said, we need to go evacuate an elder care facility right now. Are these vehicles, are these people with you? Can your team do that? And I said, yes, of course. Inside my head, I'm screaming, we're in the middle of a pandemic. They're the most vulnerable population. They're in a paid facility. I mean, I'm not comprehending logically what's being asked as just a community member that cares about my neighbor, of course, I'm going to go help. The logic side of me is wondering, why am I the one helping? Um, happy to help, but why me? And so we moved these people to a church in Eugene, and we set them basically on a concrete ground inches apart from each other. Um, it was a very traumatic moment um, of reality. Um, and I started just mentally and emotionally grasping for logic and comprehension. My mind was a photoreal of disaster areas and other states and countries that we've all seen in the news and how people do get set up in these kinds of places, maybe not on the floor, maybe on a cot, but, um, you know, and so there was this almost like uh, the reality of it was being processed at the same time of until again, until you walk in somebody's shoes. So even though we're all watching on the news together that there's fires around us, we're all getting the alerts, we're all going through it, 
we haven't been evacuated yet. So while we think we're experiencing it, we are not experiencing it. Um, and so there's this weird paradigm shift of actually being disconnected from an experience because you have a different vantage point and a different lens. So you think you're experiencing it the same way as your neighbor when you're really not. Um, and so long story short, uh, got them all settled in uh, and finished unloading all our vehicles and getting everything moved over. And I went straight to Silky Field and I never left. That was a that was a great experience for our community to really come together. I, mean, I don't know if that's the proper ex expression of great experience, but a great opportunity in that terrible time for us to come together. And I felt what you felt. I felt that confusion. Where is everybody? Why aren't we communicating? Where's all the resources? I had all of those very same deep, powerful emotions as well. So I just wanted to, to say that to you and affirm that I think many of us had that that were on the ground. So Silky Field was shut down. You transferred to the Masonic Lodge for a season. Let's talk about the formation now. Let's transition from that to the formation of Love First, how that came about, and some of the work you're doing right now. Uh, so my the last thing I ever intended was to start a nonprofit. Um, I understand that we already have a lot of nonprofits, especially in our community. Uh, I also already have a full-time business with my marketing company. Um, and so uh, while I had a strong resistance to forming it, uh, it was very evident that in order for us to continue being able to serve, uh, that that would be a requirement. And so you just got to do what you got to do. So there you, there we were uh, in the middle of a pandemic and a disaster, uh, serving neighbors, serving neighbors, locals, helping locals, uh, and forming a nonprofit, which I have a ton of background experience in volunteering and being on a board, but not in forming and not in writing bylaws and uh, all the different minutia that comes. I mean, these are federally charted and governed uh, or the okay, I can hear you now. Oh, good. Okay, sorry, I don't know why that's happening. Uh, I was just saying that the, it's a lot more in depth than just starting, you know, an, um, a sole proprietorship or an LLC or a corporation. You can go online, you can get your EIN number in a matter of minutes. It's very simple. That is not at all the way it works for a nonprofit. Um, you have to have a board, you have to, I mean, there's a litany of things that you have to do before you can even submit paperwork. Um, and it's a lot of paperwork and it's uh, very legalese heavy and that's not a language I'm fluent in. So it was a lot to try to navigate uh, wearing so many hats at one time. Um, we had a, a great group of people that um, have been involved. Like you said, our community has really shown up. It's been incredible. Uh, I, I don't even know that you could describe the experience of how our community has shown up. I'm so proud to be a part of this community. Um, 
And uh, so anyways, fast forwarding down the line, uh, I co-founded it with Adam Berner. He's my, my partner at Love First. And um, we recently got a grant uh, to from uh, Lane Workforce Partnership, which we're very appreciative and excited about uh, to hire people. Um, we, in our infancy of just being around for a handful of months, we have um, procured about a million dollars in support um, and thousands of volunteers. It's been uh, really just indescribable and humbling. Who are some of your board members? Uh, I have five board members at this time. There's uh, Adam Berner, again, my co-founder and myself. Uh, Brent Hample. Brent uh, co-found, or he, I think, was the sole founder of a nonprofit called India Partners uh, and ran that and has done a lot of nonprofit work and is very heavily involved in the community. Um, also, somebody named Vineet Wahi. Um, he, his background is a financial controller, um, and he's our treasurer. And uh, Shelley Fickerson, Fickerson, which uh, is uh, Bymart Corporate, and Bymart has done some really incredible things as well. It's exciting to hear that, uh, number one, you got a grant from Lane Workforce Partnership to help uh, facilitate uh, the needs of the organization that you've received about a million dollars in support and thousands of volunteers that has to be very <clears throat> I would say beyond encouraging but maybe edifying and assuring and affirming to the nature of the work of love first and the impact that it's having uh, across the, the our current geographical area where ho the holiday farm fire uh, devastated uh, devastated us. I know that you left first, meaning when I say you, uh, left first was able to provide holiday meals to many of those families too. Is that correct? Yeah, we have just uh, covered so many areas. Um, I want to also share our name is Love First because as we experienced this tragedy with the survivors, we realized uh, there are so many silos uh, that they have to navigate to even try to get help if they're even going to get help. Um, and what help is available is really limited in the scope and scale of the level of devastation um, that they have, haven't even begun to process. Um, and so we, we verify that somebody is an evacuee. Other than that, there is no silo um, there is no, um, you know, there's no landscape within our internal climate of what somebody needs to do. If they need help, we get them help. Um, we can't do everything for everybody, of course, but we come really close. Um, and so holiday meals was something that we were really, really proud of. We fed people all over the state of Oregon, um, but especially here, we distributed, um, Gosh, I want to say we fed over 500 families um, and we distributed thousands of Christmas presents. Um, we did this for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and we made sure that they had really, really, really good traditional meals, not, um, 
you know, something you'd buy at a grocery store deli, kind of take and eat cold. Um, but, you know, if you were home or if you went to a nice restaurant, we want it, we just want them to always feel um, loved and supported and uh, know that they're not alone in this process. And um, food is a huge, huge, huge part, especially during the holidays of what feeds our soul. Where is the uh, relief center for Love First located? We're at 1489 Mohawk, uh, which is right next to a Bymart, actually, in Harbor Freight. And if someone that has uh, any family member from the Holiday Farm Fire, victim of the fire, came to that location, what are some of the things that they could receive support in? Essentially anything. Uh, so on site we have clothes, food, uh, housewares, toys, um, books, appliances, furniture, um, I mean, pet supplies, you name it. Um, we most likely have it. Uh, if we don't, we have an unmet needs form that they can fill out online. And uh, depending on what funding is available, then we definitely um, do our best to fill those needs as quickly as possible. Um, the grant that is 800 of the money that we talked about is specifically for hiring people. Um, it's to employ displaced workers. Um, and so that money isn't something that we are able to allocate to things like unmet needs. Um, but those things are there. We help with um, advocacy. A lot of people don't have um, access to a computer or aren't familiar with how to navigate doing forms online. Um, we've kind of built these trauma bonds with them. So they might not feel comfortable talking to um, some other authority or representative with a different agency. Um, and so we may help, you know, navigate those conversations with them. Um, we've done a lot of work with property cleanups. We uh, recently um, had some amazing companies come out uh, on our Facebook page, you'll see they brought uh, millions of dollars of equipment out and um, the Mormon church brought out over 100 volunteers and we did a huge cleanup, but we have been doing cleanups of river for months. Um, I mean, we've we've kind of covered the gamut. I appreciate you making that distinction, Christina, about the money that came from the grant that came from the Lane Workforce Partnership, its designation, the specificity of that and that that cannot be used for anything other than that grant designation. And I, I say that because there's a lot, it's important that people know when they donate their money to an organization, there is an oversight, there are board members, there's established budget, there are line items that need to be uh, met. And, that, and so that tells me that you are running your organization legitimately, legally, lawfully, and that you and your board members are doing, uh, following the guidelines of the state. I think it also, thank you for that. And I think it also is important for people to know um, there's kind of this misnomer that the fires are out and it's been some time. So everybody's fine and there isn't really a need out there. The recovery um, for a disaster survivor is a two year um, average timeline. And for many, you know, they may never fully recover. 
Um, and so there's just some realities of it that um, people don't understand. You know, we still need water um, for these people. We still need, I mean, there's things that just don't typically come in. Um, generators, uh, funding, um, that is definitely we, we are in desperate need of. Um, the other part to that is um, if people make a financial donation, I know uh, we've been trained as a society to make sure that the nonprofit doesn't get to have any of the money. Uh, I would love to challenge that thinking. It's kind of along the same line as teachers and social service workers. They, this is really hard work um, and they need to make a livable wage. Um, and I would like to advocate for us as a society to have some different framework um, in how we talk about those things and how we view them. Um, with that being said, I'm gonna fall in alignment with supporting the opposite um, because we essentially take no money um, for administrative costs with this grant. It covers uh, us needing to pay employees. And so donations really are essentially going 100% directly to uh, the wildfire survivor. Yeah, you're in a very difficult stage as far as establishing, building, and forming the foundational, the fun, financial foundation of a nonprofit, that's for sure. And it's going to be hard work. And, and you're right, you people do need to be paid for uh, their efforts, their energies, their devotion, and their commitment. Can you tell us, I've been seeing a lot, been watching a lot of the videos and photos of your work with Love First up in Blue River. Do you know, this might not be a question that you might be able to answer, but I think maybe you will. We've heard that the water up there still is not drinkable. And even if they try to begin to rebuild, there's much of that that is not, it's not even inhabitable. Is that true? Yeah, there, um, that is true. There is um, a longer list than that of issues and concerns. A lot of the lots um, in Blue River were considered non-conforming. Um, and so uh, that is a current hot topic, if you will. Um, there's also um, uh, in that same arena of um, attention is um, how things will be addressed in area to potential erosion because of the fire, you know, maybe the soil isn't as strong. And so maybe there's concerns for landslides or things like that. And so maybe your uh, property that you're the owner of um, now needs to be rezoned um, as, you know, a riparian, as an example. Um, obviously, if you're the property owner, you're not going to um, probably be very receptive of hearing that. So um, there is a lot right now that is being navigated. Um, and, you know, I would just encourage people to educate themselves. That's one of the most important things we can do on any topic. If you are interested, uh, educate yourself. Um, and if you would like to uh, get involved in helping us or communicating with your politicians, I would encourage that as well. Are you still actively recruiting board members? And if so, how many? 
We are, uh, I think, not getting to a board size of larger than 10 uh, would be a healthy number. Um, we are wanting to do it slowly and intentionally and with purpose. Uh, we did have to legally have at least four people just to be um, able to file the paperwork. Uh, and so we tried to be really mindful and selective in that process. And we would love to have people um, who want to join the board be people that really believe in the mission, um, have a heart for it, um, have capacity to have involvement um, in being an active board member. We only meet uh, once a month for an hour, but uh, we would hope if somebody wanted to be on the board that um, they would want to do more than attend a meeting. Um, and so uh, we just want to make sure that whomever is joining the board in these last uh, handful of positions is somebody that really is wanting to help shape and mold um, the, the vision and the culture of Love First. Well, I think it's really important that uh, you clearly establish that you do have a board, that they are meeting, that they are meeting on a monthly basis, that you have been deliberate and intentioned about who those board members are, and that you'll have that same sort of uh, directiveness as you seek five, five to six more board members uh, that has, they have to come prepared to do the work culturally, forming, fashioning the culture of love first, and not just attending a one-hour meeting, but being prepared to contribute in, in other ways. That, that's something that's really important. I think a lot of people, they go on boards and they don't realize that boards are work. It requires a, a sacrifice and effort. we got about three minutes left. Tell us some of the things you're doing right now as a leader, a woman in leadership, to take care of yourself. <laughs> that's probably uh, my biggest weakness right now. I am uh, running three companies and going through some pretty major personal transitions um, and dealing with um, some uh, very major personal uh, healing, needed, needed healing. Um, so it's been a challenge um, to find a way to take care of myself in all this chaos. You know, we allow ourselves to get very busy and distracted um, and so what I have started doing, even if it's 10 minutes, it's so important, but I have started things like every morning, uh, the first thing that I do is drink a glass of water with a half of a lemon, uh, freshly squeezed into it. Mine, again, mind, body, soul. Um, I listen to something while I'm in the shower, um, you know, that has to do with maybe it's a podcast or uh, inspirational or motivational uh, speaker. Maybe it has to do with a topic, um, you know, about leadership or wildfires or uh, whatever topically seems to be something that I need direction um, and advice on. And I try to give myself at least um five to 10 minutes of just doing some kind of yoga stretches um, to start my day before I get into the computer, before I get on the phone. And so just trying to kind of have just a moment of reset, a moment of restoring. Uh, it's nowhere near enough. 
and I'm uh, going to give myself a little more time at the end of the month. You know, I think that people that are highly involved and very active in their communities, that can be a challenge is that aspect of taking care of yourself uh, in the moment. But it's a good thing that everything you said that you're doing sounds great. Uh, is there anything, I know you're really busy, you're running three companies. I know you're very busy, <laughs> but are there are there any books that you would like to draw attention to that you've read as a leader as a woman in leadership that you like to give referral to or make mention of? Uh, you know, there are a lot of really great books. I think it would depend on what you're looking for. I've talked about um, being into self-work already a few times. And so there are some really great books um, on that. I also, the business side of me um, in marketing. I have some books in that area and then there's just kind of a more uh, entertaining read. Um, so I'll just name some authors. Uh, Amy Poehler is just a real kick in the pants, I think. Um, and again, talking about uh, women, um, she has a great book. I can picture the cover and I could run and grab it really quickly, but um, she, she is a great author. Tony Robbins, um, again, I'm mentioning him twice now. Uh, he, he's just incredible. Um, he has a ton of great books on business and management and leadership and self-growth and everything else. Um, and the other uh, books that are into some deeper self-growth are more focused on um, kind of neuroscience and rewiring our brains and our nervous system and trauma healing. So uh, if somebody's interested in that, they can PM me. Yeah, I've read a lot of books on neuroscience too. I can recommend it to anyone, it's really important. And uh, if someone wanted to, based on the work that I know Love First is doing on a daily basis in the community, if someone wanted to contribute to Love First, what can what do they need to do? Do you have a website? Uh, well, they can um, come to the site. Um, we're open Tuesdays and Thursdays, 12 to 3. They could mail us a check. They could donate online. Um, they could, um, you know, volunteer services or support. Um, I mean, really, any and all help is gladly appreciated. Um, so anyway, somebody feels called um, and has capacity, um, there is a tremendous amount of need still. So where you are right now, Christina, in your professional development, in your professional woman, uh, uh, professional journey as a woman in leadership, who would you like to mention and saying thanks to? Um, well, especially being in closing, and uh, I think it's just very appropriate that I started with thanking them, and so I, I love the idea of finishing with thanking them. I want to thank uh, my mom and my Aunt Mary. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Molina Leadership Solutions, Christina Cameron, owner. She owns three companies. Uh, she's an incomparable leader here in the Lane County area, Eugene Springfield. CEO, uh, CEO of Cameron and Company, co-founder of Love First, dynamic leader. Thank you, Christina, for your time, your story. You know, we've had a little tough technical difficulties, but you just kept right on in the process. 
Thank you to Molina Law Group for their sponsorship today. You can get a hold of Molina Law Group, 541-653-8899. Molina Law Group can be found on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. Uh, Christina, thank you. Thank you for your time. Looking forward to hearing more stories of your great successes in the near future, as well as lessons learned from difficult moments. Uh, but uh, we look forward to hearing and sharing more of your, your leadership journey with you. Thank you for your time and your investment in others today. Thank you so much, Mark. And likewise. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.